Curiosity. Kill the rat. Curiosity. Kill the rat. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Curiosity Killed the Rat. We are doing a collaboration with Pint of Science again. We did it a little bit last year, but this year's a little bit more special because it's all online. I'll get Kate to bring that in in a moment. Before we start, I would just like to say that I am speaking from lands traditionally owned by the Noongar people of Western Australia. And I think it's important to note um, the importance of acknowledging the lands that we're talking from, given the Aboriginal people are probably some of the country's first scientists, really. Mm, some of the world's some of the first, world's first yeah. scientists. Australia's Indigenous population being one of the oldest living cultures yeah. on earth. Um, so, yes, just wanted to acknowledge that. And I'll pass it on over to our resident scientist, Kate. Hi. Yes, I'm Kate. I'm here too. Um, I'm a neuroscientist, the regular scientist of this show, but I will not be talking about any science today. I will, well, I'll be talking about science. I'll be <laughs> participating in conversations about science, but not leading any of the science segments because we've got three, that's right, three, three amazing guests on this episode for this Pint of Science special. Me and two of our guests, Millie and Brooke, are recording from lands traditionally owned by the Wurundjeri people, and our guest Amanda is going to be talking from lands traditionally owned by the Wulgura Kaba people. Apologies for any mispronunciations there. Um, like Matt said, I do think it's important that we at least try you know, <laughs> to acknowledge because everything that we do, all the science that we do, all the science that we talk about is is being done on lands that was stolen from these people. Um, and that's important to acknowledge. So pint of science. What's pint of science? We did some episodes last year, as Matt said. So, you know, go back, check some of those out. But if you're new to this pint of science business, don't know what we're talking about. Essentially, pint of science is an international festival, which has been running in Australia for the last seven years. So it's a non-for-profit science festival, which aims to bring local researchers out of the lab to speak with the public about their current science research. Back in the before times, before COVID was a thing, this used to happen in, before in pubs. Before these trying you know? times, as they say. Mm, mm. Well, this used to happen in pubs when, you know, this was more of an engageable thing. And unfortunately, since that is still a bit of a questionable thing, mm -hmm. Pine of Science, once again this year, is online, completely online. You can find awesome events at Pint of Science AU on social media or check out the hashtag PintAU21 um, on top of this podcast. And our next episode is also going to be a Pint of Science episode. There are heaps of other podcasts, radio shows, trivia nights, amazing things. Like it it starts officially today, you know, at the day that this day episode release, is being released. Not day of recording. No, not day of recording, day of release. But yeah, check out everything. It's, it's a really good time. And so, yes, as I was saying, we have not one, not two, but three amazing guests on today to talk about, you know, their research, what they do, science that excites them. So first of all, we have Amanda. Hey, Amanda, how you going? Great. I'm doing well. I'm excited to be a part of this. I'm excited for you too. Do you want to just quickly tell our listeners 
you know, give us a little spiel. Who are you? Why are you here? Uh, so I'm Amanda. I am a lecturer at JCU, and my science is the field of music psychology, Ooh. and specifically uh, the social and applied psychology of music. And what that all means is that I am really fascinated, and I spend all of my time trying to figure out how the music that we experience in our everyday lives uh, impacts our health and well-being is what I'm really, really yeah, fascinated by. So awesome. the fact that we all carry awesome. around these yeah. devices that fit in our pockets that allow us to pull up music at any time we want for any song we want is a radically different way that we've ever been able to engage mm. with music before. And so I like to think about how we might be able to harness that, understand that, and use that for good, uh, and in particular, use that to promote our health and well-being. That's, I, I'm so excited to hear, I mean, I'm excited for all of these, but <laughs> that, truly, that sounds super cool, and we'll get to you very, very, very soon. But first, I just want to introduce our other guests. So next we have Millie. Hey, Millie, how's it going? Hey, good, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. We're excited to have you. Just quickly, tell our listeners, who are you? Why are you here? Well, hello. My name is Emily Sekluna on paperwork, but most people call me Millie. Um, I'm a third-year PhD candidate at La Trobe University in Melbourne, and I study the wonderful little carnivorous marsupial called the fat-tailed dunnart. Yes, that mm. is their real name. And That's I incredible. answer questions related to their ecology, their conservation status, their reproductive biology, their personalities and behavior, and their skull morphology. Really excited to hear about all of that as well. And so different five, to Amanda's science. Oh, all probably very these, different to Brooks. <laughs> all of these are very different. And my background's in neuroscience, which is also like different again. So we're going to have so such, awesome. so many different perspectives coming into these discussions. And I'm like super, super keen for it. But before we get to that, we have one more guest to introduce. Brooke, hey, how's it going? Good, thank you. How are you guys? Excited. Fantastic. So like, Looking I keep saying this. that I'm excited, but I genuinely am. Like this is... <laughs> I think this is going to be a really fun one. Um, but before we have too much fun, Brooke, who are you? How's it going? Who are you? Uh, good. So my name is Brooke Froger and I am a senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne. Um, so I specialise in biomedical engineering. So that's mm. looking at the intersection between engineering and biology. Mm. And I guess usually when I explain it to people, what is biomedical engineering? It's uh, looking at the engineering side of medicine. So any sort of technology that has to do with medicine has to do with biomedical engineering. Um, but what I look at is biomimetic materials and how we can use them as therapies. So biomimetic is materials that mimic biology. And then are we able to develop different therapeutics for it? And I have an interest in wound healing and tissue regeneration. Awesome. That's really Seems cool like biology well. and engineering is just sort of like a forbidden pairing, you know? I feel like people <laughs> who do physics and engineers are just like, there's always like a rivalry between them and biologists. So it's cool to see them come yeah. together. Oh, yeah. It is. And, and the way that it comes together with this is like you need both parts. One can't work without the other. Mm. Yeah. I love that. All right. Well, starting us off today, we've decided to throw Amanda under the bus, <laughs> make her go first, but it's going to be great. It's going to be fine. Um, I'm super keen. Amanda, 
So it's off. I I'm keen to hear about this this music stuff. Yeah, well, uh, broadly, my research these days is really focused on, like I was saying, our everyday experiences. So I'm really interested in not necessarily just musicians or somebody who has heaps of training uh, can play instruments. I'm really interested in all of us how we experience music in everyday life. And that really needs to consider the context we're in. So most of us, when we engage with music listening, we're also doing something else. We're not sitting in a dark room just Mm. listening to music, right? You're probably sitting on the tram or you're sitting on a bus or you might be at the gym exercising. Maybe you're cooking in the kitchen. There's generally something going on. And so uh, a lot of the research that's been done in the lab doesn't necessarily then relate to how we actually experience music in real life. But in saying all of that, what I really want to think about is our health and well-being. So lately, a lot of my research is focused on music uh, listening and also listening to the radio. And of course, then you've got podcasts and you've got all of these different technologies we use. And even these different formats work across different technologies. So it's a very complicated thing. But keeping all of that in mind is really important to understand how much choice and control we have in that. And then that Mm -hmm. factors into how engaging we uh, find the music and the benefits that it might have. Now, that's very important to like understand the idea of, you know, listening to music in those different contexts. Because I think some of my most, you know, a lot of my time spent as a teen would be listening to music on my iPod, especially when I was walking to and from school. Like, I mean, a lot I, of I, my time now is yeah, spent listening to like, music when I'm in the lab, when I'm commuting, when I'm at home. Like When I go back and listen to these songs that I would listen to like on repeat back then, it can often just like re-trigger a very like emotional mm. response in me of like, oh yeah, if I ever want to go back to how I was feeling when I was an angsty 16 year old, I just need to listen to this album and I'm right back there almost <laughs> at school about to cry in a toilet. Like, So that's what's so really true. cool about music in terms of memory and nostalgia is actually the senses that are strongest is our sense of smell and our hearing can trigger these memories the strongest. And so what's really cool is exactly, Matt, what you were saying is these songs and it's not even necessarily the specific melody or the notes that are being played, but it's all of these associations that you develop. So this is the song that I heard when I was 16, when I first broke up with my first partner, was the song that I danced to at a wedding. All of these things come together and we can actually use that and help trigger people's memories. There's a lot of work being done with uh, people who have dementia, for example, where you can actually Mm. use music to re-trigger not only memories, but also movement and speech and all of these amazing things because of just like how well music cements in you and it sticks with you uh, throughout your entire life. Is it something about music as opposed to just like sounds? Because like obviously it's our auditory processing, but is there something like... I don't, I don't even know how one defines music, you know, as opposed to just like a series of sounds. Right. And like, what is it? Is it just about like the pattern? Like, what is it that makes music music, first of all? And then like, is that different? Like, does that have a different effect 
in these kinds of situations. So you've got a lot of questions wrapped up there. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Which is fine. But uh, yeah, the question of what is music is, uh, I don't think we actually really have one answer because music can mean so many things to so many different people. Mm. And then you you think about it as music as an act. You are making music, you perform music, you Mm -hmm. listen to music, but then also like, you buy a CD or you buy an MP3 file or now maybe you don't even purchase it. You just hit play on a Spotify mm. account or whatever it might be on the Internet. And so is music a tangible thing? Is it an it, it's, a, it's a thing. Mm. It's an experience. It's a feeling. There's so much to it. And it means so many different things that it makes it hard. But what's really interesting and a point you touched on there is uh, a lot of the work Uh, that I've been doing recently about the radio. Music, big part of the radio, but not the Mm. only feature. And so Mm. when I've been talking to people, uh, in particular older adults, who uh, might be isolated, listening by themselves, loneliness, big concern, there's something about the human voice as well. So they're tuning in and they know that their favorite presenter is on at a certain time every day or they hear the news being presented by the same person. And that's there's regularity in that. There's comfort in that. So there's comfort in music and music can act as uh, one of my colleagues calls it a social surrogate, that even listening mm. by yourself is a social act because you engage in a relationship between the other artists who you're listening to and the musicians. And I really like that idea when we think now about this COVID situation and the aftermath of COVID, where I think loneliness and isolation Mm. are really massive things that we're going to have to tackle even more than before. They were already big issues. So I really like this idea of how music and voice, and it could be even nature sounds, that's uh, beneficial to your well-being as well, yeah. environmental, uh, in you know, positive, calming environment. So there's so much wrapped in that. But I think part of it is the ability, in terms of music at least, to put yourself in the singer's shoes or relate to the mm. words being said, and you can console yourself and have community even if you're by yourself. I can definitely, you know, even just like anecdotally that hits very hard for me in terms Mm. of you know once again in this COVID situation so for like context you know I'm in Melbourne Matt's in Perth obviously and a lot of my friends um, a lot of my friends are musicians and they live in Perth and I found when we were stuck in our Melbourne lockdown and the WA border was closed and I couldn't see my friends for more than a year the music I listened to and got the most sort of like comfort out of is the stuff that my friends have put out because I would hear my friends like singing stuff to me and it truly it was a way for me to like you know it was better than like a zoom call with them Mm. like it was just easier but like I found so much comfort in that in like listening to my friends music like it yeah truly yeah. yeah and so some of the research my colleagues and I have done particularly around music listening and COVID we actually asked university students throughout over a a series of about six time points throughout uh, the beginning of COVID about their use of different media. So we asked them about listening to music, but also watching TV, movies, Netflix, Mm -hmm. um, also using social media, playing video games. And actually music listening was positively associated with uh, uh, satisfaction with life, whereas uh, watching movies was not. 
So it oh, had um, listening to music and other researchers are finding very similar findings around positive mood change, uh, mm. well-being aspects, uh, calming anxiety from COVID, all of these really positive benefits. In particular, it's not just media, but is something about the listening to music that we're all doing, which I think we can yeah, take wow. that moving forward uh, and really try to continue to understand how we develop strategies around making sure mm-hmm. that the music we listen to is helpful because it can also be negative. So Matt, you mentioned you could put yourself back into that angsty 16-year-old yeah. state, right? <laughs> yeah. If, um, as my colleagues study why people like sad music, why do we listen mm. to sad songs? Mm. We might think that we'd want to cheer ourselves up. Now, we can listen to sad music to vent have frustrations, you might put that heavy metal music on and just, Mm. you know, get that anger out. So it can still be positive, but it also can be, if you're ruminating on something in a depressive state, it could actually be harmful because you could continue to sit in that state. So not Mm. all music listening is positive, but we can dig into this to try to look at, well, what, what happens, what are the patterns how do we teach people to use this strategy that can be so positive, but make sure that it is positive mm. and not negative? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I, um, when I, if I'd go back and listen to some of that um, <laughs> older, older stuff that puts me in that certain kind of, I, I can't really listen to that music anymore these days because generally, you know, um, my you know state of life and mental health is, you know really good at the mm. moment. And if I go back and listen to that, then I find that the nostalgic feeling I'm feeling isn't just like those um, like events or anything around that time, but it's the actual feeling. So I can't listen to it without feeling sad and I don't want to feel sad. So I can't listen to that music anymore, which sucks because I liked that music. It was, it was some of my favorite stuff for a time. Um, mm. I like, I, I bet I could probably train it out of me if I, you know, forced myself to listen to it now and create new positive associations with that. But part of me doesn't want to, cause I'm kind of like, I'm kind of destroying a piece of nostalgia. I'm destroying a memory of me, you know? It's like... It's a time capsule in a way, mm. right? Like, music... I can chronicle my life in terms of the music that I... And actually, I heard a really interesting thing recently um, listening to another podcast, another science podcast, the ASAP Science uh, podcast that I, I really enjoy. And one of the hosts of that show... I can't remember what it, what the topic was, but... He was talking about music. Oh, I think he was talking about memory, but he was saying that the way he structures all the playlists in his like Spotify is like by the season. So like as it goes from winter, summer, blah, 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 each year. So he has four chapters per year and just like creates a playlist of the music that he's listening to at that point in his life. And then when he wants to remember what was happening in, you know, the summer of 2018, he'll go back to his summer 2018 playlist, listen to that music, and then he'll be able to remember all the like cool stuff that he did in the summer of 2018. And I was like, that's such a cool idea because I get that when I listen to certain songs and whatever, but like actually making the effort to structure it that way and then make the like conscious decision to be like, I want to relive this chunk of my life and then to go out and like do that. Like, yeah, that's so really that's, cool. that's super cool. And I think that uh, speaks to sort of this work that's being done with uh, music and people who have dementia because it can act mm. as that cue, right? And so what's actually also mm. really interesting, I was going to say this to Matt, is perhaps in about 20, 30 years, you might actually find that that's the music you want to listen to. Because if we look at people's preferences, Mm. they really start to crystallize 
when you're a late adolescent, early adult. Mm. And so whatever music you were listening to at the time sort of sticks with you. And yeah. until really recently, that was really prevalent by what was on the radio. So you can, you know, if you go into an aged mm. care facility, you can see that trend happening. They'll put on Dean Martin, they'll put on Elvis. And well, Elvis mm. transcends generations, but um, <laughs> you can see this. But what I'm really curious to see is now that we have essentially these huge uh streaming services and catalogs of music, we no longer, we still have the top 40 and what's popular on the radio still continues to change, but we no longer are just held to that. So you might mm. discover Elvis at the same time you discovered Justin Bieber or whoever yeah. it might be. And so I'm really curious to see if that pattern still holds, that you can go, okay, when I was 16, I listened to whatever it was, and now I'm mm. 80, and that's what I want to hear. Or will this sort of meld and shape and change, and we might just, like, who knows what we're going to hear when we're all that mm. age and mm. wanting to have comfort in what we hear. So at, will technology change it? I think it might. It'll be really interesting to see. I reckon it'll still be around. It'll just be a lot more um, personalized. Like you're not yes. going to see a trend of like, you know, all of the people from this generation were listening to Elvis because the only way they could access Elvis was, you know, the radio. Whereas now mm. we all have very personally curated Spotify things or Apple mm. music, wherever you get your music. And usually what I do now to discover new music is I'll be listening to like a song that I like. I'll go to Spotify radio for that song, which will create a bunch of, mm. find a list of a bunch of other songs that are similar to that. Listen through that, find a new song I like from that, create a new radio station and just kind of go on this flow of similar sounding songs to discover new music. And then when I find something I really like, mm. I'll listen to it on repeat for a month. Um, <laughs> so like I could go back, you know, when I get, you know, Spotify wrapped at the end of the year, this isn't sponsored by Spotify, by the way, I just happen to, I just happen <laughs> Yo, to Spotify, use Spotify. Sponsor us. I mean, shit, if Spotify wanted to pay us, fucking, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say no to that. Um, look, if but, Spotify uh, wants me to do some more research <laughs> for them, I'm here. So let's do it. But if I listen to my Spotify wrapped at the end of each year and it shows me all of my most listened to music over the course of the year, like anytime a song comes on, I can be like, right, I was listening to that when I was doing this and I have very personal associations and feelings yeah. with all of the yeah. variety cool of also genres and variety there of music is, but it's all um, In addition to these very personal choices I do want to make the point that uh, some of my research has shown that the seasons does impact what we choose, which I think is so cool. So we've got these oh, really what? personal level decisions, right? Your personal preferences are going to dictate what you choose. And so I set up a study to ask people about what music they'd put into a playlist based on the different seasons to try to see if it was just people's personal, like, this is my favorite song, so this is what I want to hear. But it turns out, in addition to that, there's also these trends where we want to listen to more energetic music in warmer months and sort of more calmer music in cooler months. And the coolest thing about that, other than huh. like that's such a macro level that's influence, cool. which is wildly cool, but it's also wildly cool because it matches the trends that you see relative to the weather in terms of people's moods, so seasonal affective disorder, similar thing, yeah, and it matches right, right. patterns of moods, uh, patterns of weather compared to financial decisions so it's, and like aggression, where they see more aggression in warmer climates, they see more tr stock trading. It's super cool to see these like patterns in very different facets of our life all sort of match up 
relative to this really high level influence that like you don't really think about. Yes. Mm. Is it the weather that is kind of the overarching or the kind of hypothesis that it's the weather's the overarching thing that's influencing the music, the mood, the financial decisions, or, you know, like has causality kind of been proven in that particular direction? Or is there possibly like another, you know, external thing we haven't figured out yet that's influencing mood and weather and music kind of independently or, you know, our financial decisions influencing mood yeah. and music. I, like, don't, you know, I don't think causality is, like, we were just looking for associations, so we can't yeah, speak yeah, to causality. Yeah. But I think, honestly, if you sort of, like, dig into it and you would make me hazard a guess, I think it's actually mood-based. I think it's yeah, more, okay. you know, like, so much of the reasons, when you ask people the reasons that they listen to music, one of the most common reasons is to deal with your emotions, Mm, to regulate mm -hmm. your emotions, to vent your emotions, to express, to perceive emotions. And there's Mm. so much wrapped up in our mood where our mood really is really affected by so many different things, but yet so present in our actions and our experiences that I hazard Mm. a guess that it would be maybe that's the sort of central node to some of these other things going on. Mm-hmm. Amanda, I found I find this science so incredibly fascinating. I feel like I, um, you know, when I went through that angsty teen stage, for whatever reason, I just wasn't drawn to music as much as a lot of my friends were. And so I kind of always thought, oh, for whatever reason, I'm not as connected with music as some other people were. But I actually have um, diagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder and I've been dealing with that for a few years. And it really hit home for me how much music was, in fact, very much a part of my life when all of a sudden a song would come on and I quite literally would become unhinged. And then it's, Mm. you know, it would totally throw me, you know, and I'd be perfectly happy and then all of a sudden, you know, an absolute mess. Um, And... Yeah, that's been like something that's been a key part of trying to get through different traumatic occurrences in my life. And I just wasn't prepared for how much, yeah, music would be connected to my <laughs> to my existence because I felt like I missed that boat when I was younger. But here I am, you know. <laughs> that's really interesting. But it, um, I mean, so I'm music psychology, but there's a whole profession of music therapy, right? And they do amazing oh. things. And so, and even a lot of um, psychologists use music in their practices, even if they're not music therapists. So to be a music therapist, that's a, a profession. You need to have a credit uh, accreditation to be, call yourself a music therapist. So I'm not one of those, but I support all of the work that they do. But um, clinicians, psychologists, social workers, all of these different people uh, can use music in their practices And uh, one of the reasons is, is because it can elicit emotions and kind of can help people process um, not only their emotions, but process previous events that they've had. So I hope that it doesn't continue to be traumatic for you, Millie, but I, (laughs) you know, hopefully you can, this is exactly what I'm talking about of trying to understand how we might use strategies Mm. for good and to help us manage our well-being and not cause more trauma from it. But I think, you know, there's, it's really fascinating. Um, There are, there are some people who don't respond to music that, that does exist in the world, but for the large majority of people, they, we do enjoy music and get pleasure out of listening to music. So. Yeah. I'm pleased to say it absolutely has Mm. been a positive thing for me 
me. Yeah, no, it totally has been. <laughs> and now, yeah, I can really enjoy certain songs mm. and, you know, I've, I've totally reset my focus and my memory. It's just been reset because of music and because of being able to, um, yeah, take myself back to those moments. And then I guess, yeah, I, <laughs> I don't quite know what, what the wizardry is behind <laughs> it, but re, you know, reprocessing those memories and associations with, with music. It's, it's a pretty incredible and beautiful Th- thing. That was something I was wondering when, when you were saying that it could be used for help with dementia and memory with dementia, my mind did go to PTSD. And if you had musical associations, could you use that to retrain and rewire the brain in the same way you could with dementia? And mm. Seems you can. So that's awesome. Yeah, it so seems I'm, you can. Yeah, there's a there's a whole world of neuroscience going on, and you know things are. You you look at sort of MRI images of people when they listen to music, and there's all these different areas of our brain lighting up. It's like food. It's like sex. It's like I mean the neuro pathways. It's it's incredible to watch. So In that's fact, we also, have an episode. You know, shout yeah. out anyone listening to this. We have an episode from. Oh, last season where I talked a little bit about what listening to music does in terms of the reward in the brain. Yeah. Go back and listen to that. If oh, you're, yeah, yeah. If you're listening Perfect. and you're keen, yeah, Matt, you, you don't even remember. No, you no, that was the one with um, Cat's Eye Parish, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah Cat's yeah. Eye Parish, exactly. James. Um, oh, that was a good one. That was wholesome. <laughs> anyway, sorry to interrupt you, Amanda. I was just, you know, can't help but the self-promo, you know, cheeky little self-promo. Uh, <laughs> but... You know, time flies when you're having fun. We're about out of time for you. So before we move on, is there anything that, you know, you didn't quite get to yet that or any, you know, take home message or final thing that you wanted to chuck out there before we shuffled on to Millie? Uh, well, I did uh, propose for Pint of Science that I would mention the work that's been done around music and COVID. Um, and oh, you, yes, you've seen true. so many viral videos flying yeah. by. Um, but uh, just to add to all of that, there's so much positive and it really goes back to the fact that music is an inherently social activity that brings people together, creates community, creates situations. So I guess my take-home message is there, like, you can use music um, to help regulate your emotions, to help sort of create community. There is the potential for it to be a negative experience, but also really a lot of potential for it to be quite positive for our well-being. And there's a whole lot of people all around the world really digging into this music science to understand how we can all Mm. benefit from this. So, I, I, you know, if people are having sort of a down day or whatever, maybe chuck a song on, have a little dance, and see what it might do for you. (laughs) Fantastic advice. I'm going to do that later after we finish (laughs) recording. Pump some music, have a little dance. It's going to be great. Thank you for that, Amanda. That was super super interesting and now we've got Millie up next and I'm I'm really excited to hear about this cute little fat-tailed dunnart um (laughs) tell me more oh so yes um, I work with the fat-tailed dunnart which is a carnivorous marsupial um they're an Australian species so they're in the family Daziuridae which is the um yeah it's all the carnivorous marsupials so they're cousins with the Tasmanian devils with quolls with antichinus and they're kind of second or third cousins with the extinct thylacine. So mm. um, the thing is that the fat-tailed dunnarts, they weigh around 15 grams. So that's smaller than a house oh, mouse. Tiny. So yeah, people often mistake them. Yeah, so tiny, tiny but ferocious. Um, they mm. mistake them for being rodents, but the thing is it's they're so far from being rodents. Uh, they're actually, they're quite literally closer to be, yeah, to being a Tasmanian devil or or right. a Tasmanian so they have like tiger. the world's tiniest pouch. 
Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, their pouches are so tiny. They are so cute. You don't even know. <laughs> they, um, they're actually, so a lot of the Dazzy Urids will do the same where they actually will have like 30 young and then however many, you know, because they're like embryonic when they, when marsupials give birth and then they move up to the pouch mm. um, and then latch onto a teat. And because Dunarts um, will have a maximum of 10 teats, um, they pretty much, it's whoever gets on first, oh, they survive. Everyone else, no. <laughs> survive oh, how many the is normally, you know, in a litter? Like, is, are you losing many? <laughs> you usually will have between seven to ten in a, in a okay. litter. I mean, yeah, six or seven is standard. You can, sometimes you'll only have one that'll make it to weaning or you can have, I've had litters of ten as well. Mm-hmm. Um I ran a captive colony of fat-tailed dunarts at Latrobe for a couple of years. So I started with 40 or 50 animals and over the years I ended up caring for over 700 of them. So oh I captive bred 400, <laughs> redistributed over 200 to zoos and sanctuaries across Australia. I um, Apparently I was good at making dunarts, so <laughs> <laughs> I sprinkled them around. Fantastic. <laughs> The Dunant Ferry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Millie, do they live in a particular area of Australia naturally? Yeah, thanks for asking. So this species ecology is um, its pretty intriguing. They occur in most states of Australia on the mainland. They're not in Tassie. They largely inhabit arid areas, so they'll be found in the desert in, in most states. But in Victoria, they occupy the, the Victorian basalt grasslands, which is a criti- critically endangered ecosystem. And I've been really honing in on the fact that they are genetically distinct. So the ones that I work on are genetically distinct and they are dissimilar from the other um, fat-tailed dunarts that occur across Australia. So I've been working on trying to get them recognised as as being separate mm. subspecies and um, making sure that they're protected because any small marsupial that's occurring in a critically endangered you know, ecosystem surely is not doing so well. And that's definitely what my uh, research has shown. So I've been um, trying to get them onto the statutory listings and increase their conservation status. But yeah, so our guys here in Victoria um, aren't doing as well as everywhere else in Australia, but they're really quite diverse in their habitat. They're often found under, you know, they, they love the soil cracks or under rocks, under logs, um, they'll dig tunnel systems, but they it's very much under already existing um, kind of habitat. When you say like captive breeding them and then redistributing, that, that just means you're breeding them in your like lab facility? Yeah. So I have um, different temperature, humidity and light controlled rooms. Yep. And I was able to replicate different seasons by changing those oh, yeah, settings. Right. And so then by doing that, I could then, I basically, well, I tracked the reproductive cycle of every single animal. So I'd have mm-hmm. up to 250 at one time, as that's what our permit allowed. Mm-hmm. And every animal I would track, yeah, their reproductive cycle and then switch them around between rooms to bring animals into estrus. And then I'd pair them with the certain males that I wanted them to maybe make babies with if they felt, if they felt like it. And and then, yeah, yeah I'd, I'd um, outcross genetics and make sure that, yeah, you know, yeah. we were outbreeding as much as possible. I swapped animals with other institutions to try and outbreed. Um, yeah, so that was all part of my captive breeding program. Yeah, There's wow. a big problem in Australia in particular. We've got the worst Australian, or sorry, the worst mammal extinction 
record on the planet. So we've lost more mammals in Australia than any other country, which is pretty shameful. It's over 30 species since European settlement. Um, do we do we know why? Do we is it? Yeah, what? we definitely know why. Is it, is it, is <laughs> Most, it, is it our fault? <laughs> it's it's our definitely fault. our fault, guys. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. it's yeah. everyone other than the Indigenous Australians' fault. Yeah, um, excellent. Yeah, habitat that loss, introduction of invasive species, foxes, rabbits, cats are the biggest problem. And yeah, yeah. habitat loss. So we've just mm. been stripping all of their habitat, um, and and so we've we've lost so many of these species. So something. We're trying to do to counteract these problems is taking animals into captive facilities, mm-hmm. breeding them up, and then releasing them again, reintroducing to these them to these habitats. But unfortunately, a lot of the time, these reintroductions are unsuccessful. So part of my research has been trying to um, identify personality or behaviour traits or cognitive abilities within mm-hmm. different individuals that might lead to reintroduction success. So yeah, are there wow. specific animals that behave in a certain way that will survive better once you reintroduce them than others? And it's it's such an odd thing to think about studying, you know, fat-tailed Dunnart personalities. But I guess when you look at your <laughs> pet cat or dog, it becomes so obvious that animals Oh, my dog actually... has a personality. My dog oh, for is sure. a personality. Some are so sassy, you know, some are really shy and that's irrespective of, you know, sex, breed, genetics, everything. You can have two dogs that are the same age, same sex, same, same breed, and they'll still behave totally differently. So Mm. it comes down to personal behavior. Do we know what, like, you know, what that stems from some of those differences or do we, you know, just kind of assess them? through different, like, what do you use to kind of assess the personalities and, like, can you kind of predict that, you know, an animal of one temperament is going to maybe give birth to an animal of a similar temperament? Like, Yeah, awesome question. So something that I've been doing is doing all these different behavioural and cognitive tests on my captive individuals. So I did a, about six different tests on over 200 animals. And mm-hmm. then I've been trying to do the same with wild animals to compare and answer mm-hmm. that exact question. So mm-hmm. have my captive bred individuals that, you know, have been captive bred for some of them up to 22 generations when you actually track it back. Yeah. Surely you would expect some behaviour change in some mm-hmm. of those animals compared to your wild. And that and that happens through domestication mm-hmm. in the same way that, you know, your domestic dogs are going to be, mm. behave very differently to wolves wild that dogs. are still out in the wild, right? Yeah. Even though they're so closely related. So domestication is a massive part of that. And that leads to behavior change. Mm-hmm. Um, another part of that, that I've been studying is the morphological changes that occur in captivity. And then that's part of what I've been looking at is skull morphology. So oh, you can never yeah. quite replicate the same diet in captivity as the animal would be eating out in the wild. You can try as hard as you like, and of course yeah. you can get it pretty close, but there's always going to be slight differences, yeah. especially when it comes yeah. to carnivores, right? Because Ooh. ethics won't yeah. allow you to feed, you know, That's, different yeah. carnivores live yep. prey and that kind of thing. Like, Fair. so that's something that I've found with with the skull morphology is changes have occurred um, in different skull measurements or and mm. in brain size even. And that's because of different, for example, different muscles used for chewing, different, yeah, of course. you know, softer foods compared to harder foods, that kind yeah, of yeah, thing. Yeah. And it, I've, I've found actual 
in, you know, entire snout sort of length changes and the width of the skull has changed. And a lot of that is comes down to diet. I mean, wow. a lot of it is genetics and stuff as well. There's, you know, there's, there's many reasons why these changes happen, but trying to identify all of that is pretty cool. I think I digress mm. though. <laughs> the, some That's of the right. Visuals. Digressions are allowed. <laughs> I want to hear all about all of it. Oh, I just want to tell you it all. Um, some of the behavior tests that I've been doing are things like open arena tests. So put the animal in basically an open an open enclosure. There's nowhere for it to hide. What does it do? Does it sit in the middle? Does it run around and it doesn't really seem overly concerned about being exposed? Does it hide in the corner or just run along the walls perhaps because that's, you know, its only form of protection? Another test is introducing a novel object, so something that it's never seen before. I used a just a porcelain bowl, so it's a different colour, a different texture, and a different shape to something that they'd ever they would have ever seen before. Put that in the middle of the enclosure, see what they do. Some animals would run straight up, stand on it. They're like, oh, what's this situation? Others would be absolutely terrified, very confused, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so it's quite amazing to see the difference. I did predator avoidance tests. So um, gave them three in different nest boxes to choose from to sleep mm-hmm. in overnight. Uh, one was just contained hay and a cotton ball. One contained hay, a cotton ball and fox urine. And one was mm. hay, cotton ball, horse urine as a procedural control. And I found that mm. about 70% of my animals went to those two control boxes. So the ones without the fox urine. Um, oh, wow. About 20% chose the fox box to sleep in, which I was like, ooh, ooh. oh, I'm judging your like life choices. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, something interesting was that these little dunarts, and just remember they're carnivores, so they can, they can smell carnivore proteins in another carnivore's urine, right, which yeah, of course the fox yeah. is. Yeah. I observed the dunarts going into the, the fox box and then like, ripping out the cotton ball that contained the fox urine and like ripping it up and then oh. they'd go and take over the box, which so is totally to territorial find. behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Rather and than predator recognition. Yeah. So that's a whole other issues if these dunarts think that they can take on a fox. You know, they, they're but very did they bold. maybe consider it like, you know, if the, there was a potential source of food around there then if, you know, they're carnivorous and they could smell, you know, the marker of something carnivorous having existed in that space, did they maybe think, well, this means that there's food and that's what they were drawn to? Total possibility. Or it could just be that it's, hang on, someone else is in my space, Yeah, you know, I'm incredibly territorial. I, I just don't want any other um, mm-hmm. predators irrespective of size or, mm-hmm. you know, or species. It, it like could my be a dog number needing to like repee on the same tree every time we walk past it because, you know, exactly. someone's obviously peed on it in between like <laughs> since last time we were there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Just a reminder, everyone, this is still my tree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So some of the, those kinds of tests are what I've been doing. They're, they're non-invasive and just kind of ob- observing yeah. different behaviors. So these little guys, they're carnivorous, but they're tiny. How do, do they, um, do they hunt live prey? Are they scavengers? I'm just trying to imagine these tiny little fluff balls, small, swarming some, cre- <laughs> some poor creature. Do they just eat bugs or? They mostly will eat invertebrates. So they love crickets, cockroaches, beetles, wolf spiders they'll take on. Um, Pretty impressive. They're pretty fierce. But they will also eat small vertebrates. So they'll eat skinks. 
um, baby baby snakes, like your tiny little ones. Mm. And I think most interesting is that they will actually, over, over winter, they'll nest share with house mice. So they'll snuggle up next to them, which are, of course, they're invasive in Australia. Mm. But then when once it becomes the warmer months, they'll actually eat the house mice <laughs> <laughs> when they no longer need the oh snuggle buddies. So, oh, my gosh. What a yeah, so they can, I like it in, in a creepy I way. I like it. Like it's Me it's too. good because we don't like the house mice, but we do like the uh, the the what what were they Dunarts? Dunarts. We're cheering for the Dunarts here. But but <laughs> if you look at it from the mouse's perspective, that just sounds like a horror film, right? Like this person oh, has is. built your trust, you're you're sheltering from the cool like for half a year, and then next minute they turn around and eat your entire family. Like I know that's they're twisted. horrendously behaved, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> but go there. I find it quite endearing. Yeah, I was going to say, but we love them anyway. Exactly. I kind of like that level of sass, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So what, okay, if I had to ask you, what is your favourite thing, like your favourite fact, your favourite, like, thing about the fat-tailed Dunnart? Like, what is your, if you had to pick one? Yeah, I've just sent you into a shock. You're like, (laughs) one thing? Oh, my goodness. You have to remember that fat-tailed Dunnarts are basically the only thing that I know anything about in the world. (laughs) (laughs) So So you have lots of things to choose from. (laughs) Um, I think I love that fact about how they'll they'll nest share with house mice and Mm. then they'll also consume them. I just love how fierce they are. They please go and, and Google some photos. They are so cute, but they are also so ferocious, so dramatic. Mm-hmm. I love their personalities and it's mm-hmm. been such a joy being able to work with them, you know, so hands-on for such a long time. Um, you know, I really do want to be a Dunnart when I grow up because they're just <laughs> <laughs> they're so fabulous. I just looked at some photos and they're cute little ears that also yeah, no. They look very harmless. They look Don't harmless, they? but yes, uh, I guess from what you've just said, they're not. They're not. I, I really like that they're so... Um, they're cute. They really look cute. What's the word? Like deceiving. Mm. They're very deceiving. Mm. They look like, mm-hmm. they look very cute and harmless. But mm-hmm. yeah, when I'm out catching them in the field, I've got many a photo of one just clamped on my finger, hanging on, just oh, <laughs> biting oh me and whatnot. Particularly when it says its body length is between like six and nine centimetres like that. It's tiny. It's tiny. They basically weigh as much as a couple grapes. Um, oh and I love their little their little carrot sort of shaped tails. They have quite mm. fat tails, hence the name where they store Checks fat and out, energy reserves. <laughs> yeah, it's much like a camel's hump. You know, they'll just store oh, fat in really? there. Yeah, and then once they um they go into torpor over winter, which is similar to hibernation, but not quite the same yeah. physiological um, implications. Yeah. Very similar though. Um, yeah, so they have that that you know food storage. Wow. For when they need it. That's really cool. A bit morbid, wow. but I want to narrow in on their ferocity a little bit because I'm just trying to imagine these tiny, cute little things being the ferocious killers. How exactly would they, like, kill their prey? Like a mouse, for <gasps> example. Do they constrict it, break its neck? Are they slightly Asking venomous? Asking the important question. Like, I, I want to know, how, can something, how does something that cute actually kill its prey. Fuck some shit up. Yeah. Yeah. So imagine, I don't know if you've seen a Tassie devil's teeth (laughs) before. I think I've seen photos of them something everyone sees in their life, isn't it? Surely. (laughs) I think most of the photos I've seen of them, they have their mouth open, right? Yeah. They're always (laughs) screaming at something. 
for example, rodents have these really clear, large incisors at the front of their teeth, mm. at, at the front of their mouth, sorry, and then they've got these grinding molars at the back. Mm. Um, fat-tailed dunnarts just have they have they have carnivore teeth so the whole row are really sharp and and they really do have a good grip on things so mm. they you know their biggest form of defense and the biggest way that they will will kill things is by a really powerful bite force for such little guys um the tasmanian devil i'm pretty sure they they're number 1 out of any mammal for and that includes lions bears you name it the tassie devils have the greatest bite force oh, for wow. their size out of any mammal and so you know these species are in the same genus oh it's not the same genus sorry <laughs> they're in the same family so really similar they have really powerful um jaws even though they are so small so there's no constricting there's no python action right. there's no <laughs> it's just one big <laughs> chomp. They, yeah it's basically just Pure ferocious right. biting. Oh my goodness! Do you get bitten often yeah. when you're doing field work? All the time. Does it hurt? <laughs> like a lot. All the time. Yeah, like a lot. So, like when my mice bite me, I'm like, I hate it. But like, I feel like this is next level. Yeah, I think the thing is, it's sharp pressure, but in a row. So it certainly, mm. you know, it hurts, but it's nothing too horrible. I feel like mouse incisors are more likely to pierce your skin. Mm. But a lot of the – most of the time, in fact, dunnarts won't actually draw blood. Oh, they, okay. They will, yeah. So, it, you know, it hurts, but it's it's kind of just it's endearing. tolerable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, nice try. Literally. Cute, it's kind of like, oh, thing. good for you. <laughs> yes. I find myself getting bitten quite oh, a bit while out in the field. And, of course, yeah, I – because of where I work in the grasslands, there's often sort of snakes and other lizards that I, mm. you know, might find under tiles and whatnot. So there's all sorts of things that are trying to bite me. You'd rather get bit by the dunnart than by the snake, wouldn't you? I would. I would. <laughs> I have, do you know, I have been, if you had well, to I have been bitten by snakes and I would say the dunnart Ooh. was more painful, Oh, really? <laughs> but it still wasn't, it wasn't so bad. And I, I wasn't envenomated. So yeah, <laughs> lucky yeah. this time. What a life. Um, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, once again, time flies when you're having fun and we're running out of time for this one. But once again, I'm going to give you the chance. Now's the time. If there's anything that you wanted to bring up that you haven't had the chance to bring up yet, any other cool, fun little tidbits about the fat-tailed dunnart that we must know about, please tell me. I need to know. <laughs> I think the last thing I want to end on is just remembering the importance of our incredible Australian biodiversity and the the importance of conserving that for future generations and for our environment. Mm -hmm. Every species in our ecosystem plays such a crucial role. And while I'm, you know, obsessed with this one tiny marsupial, the thing is they're all so important and mm -hmm. we can all chip in and try to do something about our changing climate and our loss of biodiversity. If, you know, the main things you can do are be aware of climate change and try mm. to do things to, to, you know, write letters to people who can actually get movement happening, your politicians, your local parliament members, mm. your council members, you know, pick up rubbish. For goodness sake, please keep your cat indoors. That's one of the greatest mm. things that you can do to help urban wildlife anyway. Mm. And as far as, you know, more regional areas, be aware of the repercussions of habitat loss Drive on roads. Don't drive off roads. You never know what is actually habitat. Some of the last remnant grasslands um, 
in Australia, we've got less than 1% of them left. And most of those critically endangered basalt grasslands are on the sides of roads. So, you know, they're just those areas that farmers haven't cleared yet. So just simple things like sticking to the track, you know, sticking to the road, don't drive off, keep your pets inside, don't feed wild animals, try to remove them from our invasive species, sorry, don't feed uh, feral cats and whatnot, try to keep them um, contained and remove them from our ecosystems. Of course, all animals are incredible, but it doesn't mean that all species belong everywhere. So, you know, supporting the humane, you know, removal of of some of these invasive species, particularly foxes and cats in Australia, really will Mm do so much for our wildlife mm. and it's yeah. it's just so important <laughs> good good list of tips i'm i'm glad you gave us actual practical advice that's um i'm gonna keep all of that in mind <laughs> because i now feel a very personal responsibility to protect the fat-tailed donut with all that i am <laughs> so finally one more guest one more awesome little bit of science to hear about we're gonna shuffle along to brooke brooke talk to us about sugar well sugar polymers engineering Bioengineering. Tell us about this forbidden romance between bio and lovers. In mm. engineers and scientists. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so again, it's going to be very different to the past two talks, which mm-hmm. is, fa- I guess, fantastic. Oh, I love about it. Different science. Definitely. So yeah, as I said at the very beginning, I work at the intersection between engineering and biology. So I've been trained as an engineer. Um, and a lot of the stuff that I started off doing, particularly during my PhD, was developing biomaterials. Mm-hmm. And so if we look at things for human plants and I guess uh, even uh, contact lenses and things like that, so any material that's implanted into the body, mm-hmm. um, it's then when we implant it, do we actually know how the body responds to it? Um, and if it doesn't respond in the right way, then those implants can fail. So what I have a look at is when we implant something into our body, what is it that our body is doing? And there are a family mm. of molecules uh, called glycosaminoglycans. Oh, yeah. Um, I won't keep on saying that word because uh, <laughs> it's very long and it's a, uh, a late uh, on a Friday, so I'll get a bit tongue-tied. But so they're called gags for short. <laughs> so that, that does create some jokes in there as well. Uh, but these are they're essentially sugar polymers. So these mm-hmm. are sugar polymers or types of sugars and they're polymers because they're, they're long and they're made up of repeating units, but they're sugar polymers that our body makes. Um, yeah. So one of the most common one, and you've probably heard of before, is something called heparin. So it's an anticoagulant. Heparin, if you've been into the hospital and you need to have something to help your blood coagulate, mm-hmm. that's something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are many other types of sugar polymers in our body mm-hmm. and the ones that are similar to heparin. But one of the things that they're responsible for doing is binding to signal molecules in our body. So things that tell our cells to do different things. So to change their behavior, to move a certain way, to things like that. So mm-hmm. cell proliferation, so cell growing. And one of the, I'm interested in wound healing. Mm. So one of the things that these sugar polymers in our body is what they do in our body is uh, help uh, signal for whether or not wound healing is going to happen, depending on which ones of these structures are present. So there are thousands and thousands of these structures in our body. Mm. So it's knowing which structure has what biological function. Mm. 
what sort of like sends them out? Like, is there, are there, you know, particular, you know, cause if they bind to the signaling molecule, like on the cell, they kind of almost the, the telegram, the message that then mm-hmm. gets passed on, like who's sending the message? Uh, so cells produce these molecules. Yeah. Okay. And then they yes. release them and they bind to themselves. They can be inside the cell. Yep. So in little molecules inside the cell that get released, they can be on the cell surface. Mm-hmm. So they kind of just, there's the cell surface and they're just tethered off it and hanging yep. in the, the bit that's outside the cell or in what's called the extracellular matrix. So mm-hmm. that's the the part of your body or tissue that's the non-cellular component. Um, so they're pretty much everywhere and every type of cell mm. produces mm-hmm. these these molecules. But I guess the other thing that I do is can we, in terms of looking at therapeutics, can we take materials that occur outside the body and make them the same structure as these so that they're able mm. to then have that function? Mm. So if we have structures that help wounds heal, can we develop them in the lab or can we purify them from different materials mm. to look at different structures and then put them on a wound and see if they help it close faster or mm. if... Um, uh, some wounds, when they close, they create scars. So can we use them to help there be less scarring? Oh, yeah. Uh, and that sort of thing as well. And would That's that be family. like if you could do it in the lab and then apply it, would it then sort of send signals to the ones your body produces to, like, do the same thing? Like, is it sort of like a pass-the-message-on situation? Or would you just need the external support? You could have both. And I look at both. I look at whether or not the materials that we make in the lab, can they do the same thing as what our cells do in our body? But then I also have a look at if I put cells from our body in contact with these materials, do they then produce their own ones as well? Yes. So that's a great question. So when our cells make them, do, does it, this might be a silly question, but does it have anything to do with the, you know, the amount of sugar that is in one's diet, for argument's sake, like do the building blocks for these particular, you know, sugar polymers that get used in immune stuff and wound healing, does that ultimately come from, I mean, I guess it all comes from what we eat, but yeah, is there any, like, do you think you could influence, you know, wound healing with a high sugar diet, for example, (laughs) to kind of like, you know. As far as I'm aware, the sugar that we eat does not. Mm -hmm. It just goes into your muscle storage, I guess, Mm. glycogen. Yep. Yeah, because it's uh, there are many different types of sugar structures. Yeah, and so these sugar structures are different from the sugar structures that we eat. Mm-hmm. But I guess if you're eating a lot of sugar, uh, one of the um, side effects of having diabetes is you have wounds that are hard to heal. Okay, so, so you could actually make things worse for yourself. So don't eat a high sugar diet. <laughs> no, don't eat a high sugar diet. These are different oh, sugars. Yeah, I love the idea of just being able to. <laughs> <laughs> go to it town was... on bags of lollies for the good of my health. <laughs> I know. It was truly like a very optimistic hope, right, that yeah. I could be like <laughs> this very bag of thinking. lollies is going to yeah, be benefiting. Okay. That's okay. That's fair. Um... So there are lots of different um, sugar types, uh, sorry, uh, sugar structures that, that are different from the ones we eat. What makes a sugar a sugar? Like I understand in terms of the ones we eat, we've got, glucose, fructose, sucrose, all of those ones, which I assume all three of them are different from the ones in question here. What is mm-hmm. the chemical ke- a chemist's definition of a sugar compound? Uh, well, it's a polysaccharide. So a saccharide is the what six 
it's a six-ring compound. Right. And then sometimes they have the same six-ring compound all the way through, and then you have different ones. So it's how those structures, so how those chemical structures change, which is then if, if they have the, the saccharide, it's classed as a sugar, but then the different ones have different chemical structures. Right. So I guess that's a very simple way of saying mm. it. Of all the things that these sugar polymers do in the body that someone might not expect a sugar polymer to do, what what do you think is the most, like, mind-blowing one? Like, you know, what's something that, you know, if someone was like, blow my mind, what's what's the, the wildest thing, the wackest thing that sugar does in your body when you don't necessarily think of sugar that way? Uh, I guess I'm not quite sure what the wildest thing is, but it's mm-hmm. I guess it's more... The more I learn about these molecules, they're involved in everything. Yeah, okay. It's one of those things where you're just like, that's they are what's absolutely wild. absolutely involved. Just... Yes. Yeah, um, okay. So these molecules have a role in how our blood vessels form. Um, they have a role in all uh, all these certain things that happen within our brain as well. So how, I've said before, how skin heals. Uh, they have a role in how, um, in our cartilage, so our cartilage, because it's particularly in our knees where it's load-bearing, mm-hmm. they help with the compression forces with that. So they I'm pretty much yet to find something in our body that they're not involved <laughs> with. Yeah, wow. Yes. But that's just because these are, like, there are thousands and thousands of different structures of these materials. In your research that's looking at, like, you know, whether you can engineer, you know, rep- things that will replicate this, like... Have you have you found anything successful so far? Like, have you been able to replicate this effect with a synthetic um, polymer? Uh, yes. So the sugar polymers are polysaccharides. Mm-hmm. And so another type of polysaccharide is a material that's called chitosan. Mm-hmm. So chitosan is a product from like prawn shells and a few other mm-hmm. type of crustaceans. Um so we were able to take this material that's come from prawn shells. We we're able to chemically modify it so it looks a little bit more like the ones that are in our body. And then we were able to show that it binds to these signaling molecules the same yeah, way. Yeah. And with wound healing, one of the things that happens with wound healing is the skin cells on the top of your skin migrate to close the wound. So okay. we were able to show that these cells were then or the materials that we made also helped these cells to move faster so they would oh, yeah, then theoretically cool. close a wound faster. Faster, yeah. I wonder yeah. if people with crustacea allergies would have a reaction to that. Hopefully, I guess, with how you purify them, you're taking something out and it, it takes away the um, what would be the or what would create the allergic response. Mm. But I guess I've never thought of it that way. But yeah, there <laughs> yeah, are, I guess it there depends are people with allergen is right like i'm not sure what it is in crustaceans that causes that reaction like you know it's the dander in like cats Mm. but i'm not sure whether it's something you know a polysaccharide in the shell that's causing the reaction that would be unfortunate because you don't eat the shells do you of cross i don't know you you can sometimes i I don't like prawns so i don't i don't you can use the shells of um like lobsters and prawns and stuff you can make it into a really nice stock you can make into like a nice mayo oh. and things like that. It's it's a base for a lot of um, seafood dishes and things. Is to yes. there's a lot of flavor contained within the shell, but you don't just chomp down on the shell itself. 
Yeah, yeah. There you go. But one of the other reasons why we're trying to make these materials ourselves in the lab rather than extract them out of Mm. tissue is because of the scale that you need things on Mm. and how much it costs to do things. Yeah, right. Um, So I mentioned that heparin is one of the most well-known of these. Yeah. Um, And so it's uh, the heparin that people get in in hospital if they need it. Mm -hmm. It's all derived. It's all animal-derived. So it's derived yeah, from wow, pigs okay. and, and, and cows. Um, we are not actually able to make it in the lab. Uh, or we can make it on a research scale, mm-hmm. but in terms of being able to make something that, I guess, is then also affordable for patients. Right, so it's cheaper to extract it than it is to synthesise it. To produce it in the lab yeah. so that it has the same therapeutic effect as well. Yeah, wow. And I guess that's where the engineering comes in as well, to be able to make these things that are scalable mm. size so that it's able to do the same thing when you give it to a patient at the same mm. time. Mm. The same the same thing every time to different patients yeah. and still be affordable rather than cost thousands and thousands of dollars because mm. we, we don't want to develop something that's fantastic but then no one can be able, but then no one able can to afford use it. it. Yeah, because that would almost be more upsetting in yeah. a way than not having anything. So if you need to extract it from animals, how, how is it extracted exactly? Is it, is it a, a, a vegan-friendly treatment? Uh, probably not. Okay. <laughs> There's a particular type of immune cell in our bodies mm. that make heparin. Um, they're called mast cells. Mm. People may not realise that they know about these cells. I guess anybody who has allergies and take antihistamines, mm. these are the cells that if you have an allergic reaction, you take an antihistamine to... Help it down, but these cells also then release the heparin. So right. um, you create allergic reactions and you're able to isolate or collect a lot of these materials. Oh, okay. You're just making cows sneeze a bunch. and <laughs> that, I think that's one way of doing it, possibly, yes. <laughs> I'm sure it's more nuanced than that. <laughs> <laughs> I have a more general question just about like, you know, bioengineering and stuff in general about and how you were saying, you know, implants and because that would that a big issue with any sort of thing that goes in the body, I guess, is our body's immune response to that. Mm-hmm. Right. So how exactly like do you go about trying to avoid an immune response when you're putting a foreign object into the body? Like what sort of things do we do to not make that happen. Like I've just got no sort of concept as to how we tackle that issue. Uh, there are many different ways. Yeah. And people look at many different things. And it really does come down to where the implant is going. But mm-hmm. um, some some things that you can do is change the surface of the material. Mm-hmm. So you can change the surface so that cells, you want cells to integrate mm-hmm. and grow into it. So something like a hip implant that you want to stay in place and you don't mm-hmm. want to move you then want the bone to really grow inside of that. Um, Other ones, I guess, if you're implanting something within the heart, so you might Mm -hmm. have a stent or an artificial valve, um, you don't really want too much, you want enough tissue integration there that it stays in place, but not so much that if you get, I guess, a a immune response, if you have a a stent, the stent's there to open up your blood vessel, Mm. but you don't want such an immune response that then closes up your blood vessel. Yeah, that Um, would be counterproductive. Yeah, so you can do things like coating them with different things, like different drugs that release depending on where the implant is. There's there's many different ways. You can use different materials as well. Mm -hmm. So if you have... 
you can change the chemistry of the materials if you want something uh, that's not going to degrade and stay there. Um, you want to make sure that nothing happens. Um, one of the, the first things you can have a look at, does it degrade in water? Um, because our yeah, body is made right. up of so much water. It's not yeah. as if it's going to be a dry a dry yes. spot that you're putting it into. So if if the if material doesn't the like water, water or reacts, mm. yep, don't want anything yeah. to rust in there. Nope. Oh, gosh, or to fall yeah. apart. No. No, we, we use materials that don't rust when you implant them in the body. Mm. I See, that's something I, I didn't even consider, but, like, of course, that's so obvious. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then even just thinking about material properties. So, for an example, uh, materials that get implanted for the brain. So mm -hmm. if you're looking at all of the um, bionics, so the bionic eye, the cochlear mm. implant, things like that, um, or any sort of soft tissue, if you want some sort of electrical conductivity, quite often that comes from metals. Yeah. But metals have a very different property in terms of mechanical. Metals are very stiff usually mm -hmm. compared to soft tissue, which is very... Yeah. soft uh, so then if you put a soft tissue next to a hard uh, material how does then that the body interact with that so there's a a lot of different aspects that you have to think about I could be completely off base here but we had a we had a guest come on the show recently talking about graphite I was literally how, just about to bring that up actually <laughs> yeah um, and about how that has a really good in-plane sort of electrical conductivity mm -hmm. um but can also therefore be maybe used for, I mean, Declan was talking about it in terms of like bendy electronics and stuff like mm -hmm. screens of phones, phones that are bendy that or stuff. And... But I'm thinking in terms of, you know, yeah, like the bionic eye or, you know, implants, like is how does graphite go in the body is <laughs> the crux of the question. And I guess that it then comes down to, and I have downloaded that podcast, but I haven't listened to it. <laughs> so I don't quite know the form. Like are they putting in, if you're putting in big sheets of graphite, I guess mm. that's very different. Um, mm -hmm. I've seen people work on projects where they, the graphite then they make into like nanomaterials mm -hmm. um, and then you can add that to other types of materials as yeah. well. Um, so there's then many different ways that you can use that material. But graphite is, is very good in terms of its ability to um, – for electrical yeah. um, conductivity, yeah, and it is quite often used in in implants that have um, well that need um, conducting of electrical signals. So, are there some implants of you know of different materials that I guess can only go in certain parts of the body, and in other parts of the body they'd be rejected? Mm -hmm. Wow, that's amazing. Yep, and then it also it's you really need to be careful the types of materials that you use as well. Um, one of and the grade that the materials are made to mm. as well. Not all materials are the same. So wow. A lot, for a lot of for whatever things. reason, my mind immediately goes to like butt implants and, you know, <laughs> they must go silicone for a reason, right, rather than going with the actual, you know, buns of steel. <laughs> that's just where mine go my mind goes but you know i'm sure there's Bonds more of steel, uh... <laughs> steel implants in your bum exactly. is now the best image that i mean i, I don't know has it ever been done before 
I feel like most people who get butt implants, they want it because it's nice and squishy, right? And so you'd want something <laughs> oh, like silicone. Oh, yeah, like, book. I mean, it depends what you're going for. But no that's the thing, here. you know, if no one's like... requested it before, how do we know? Like, have we ever seen some, like, literal rock-hard ab implants where they get some granite or something in there? And um, I know it's slightly off topic, but one of the subjects that I teach is is about the regulation of, of medical devices mm. and you see mm. some of the case studies and uh, particularly overseas there was, I think I read somewhere, there was someone that uh, got a type of cement injected. Oh, oh no. So, yeah, there's, oh. there's some... Oh. Into, like, the abs? Uh, no, I think it was, um, yeah, butt implants. Oh, oh rock hard butt. Rock hard See, butt. I knew I it. What a choice. <laughs> what a decision. Oh, my goodness. I, that was a while ago that I read it and it was, yeah. But there are some things. I mean, humans never good. failed mm. to astound me. That's just. Mm. Gosh. Well, we seem to have run pretty much out of time here again as well. But, Brooke, I will as I did with the others, give you one last chance to anything else that you, you know, you wanted to talk about that you haven't gotten to or take home message, any, any last words of wisdom? I guess my, my take home message is, uh, for anybody that's listening that I guess are students that are wondering, should I do engineering? Um, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating, um, I guess field. And I started off, I guess I chose doing this, um, I didn't quite like the idea of being a doctor mm. because having someone's people's, having someone's lives in my hands. But mm, however, in so the job that pressure. I do now, I, and I guess people that I work with, we create the technology that also helps to save people's lives. Mm. So there's fascinate like engineering is, and I guess it's nothing against any of the other fields, but engineering <laughs> is fantastic. Yes. Mm. But at the same time, we work with people I guess, surgeons, doctors, scientists that, uh, and it's really looking at interdisciplinary things mm. is. So engineering has so many different yeah. subsects and paths, right? It, it's soda. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I love biology. So the idea of bio, like bioeng is that's, that's the ultimate engineering. In my brain. <laughs> that's, you know, you would. Yeah. <laughs> I, would. I think it is as well, but I'm also biased. So. <laughs> <laughs> It's all right. It's all right. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Well, Brooke, but also Millie, Amanda, you guys were fantastic. I, I've had so much fun this episode. I feel like I've learned so much. Um, if everyone else that's been listening to the episode has loved what you had to say, which I'm sure they did because it was all just like incredibly interesting. Um, if people want to find you on social media, anywhere, where can they find you? How can they find you? We'll start with you, Amanda. Yep, certainly. Um, I tweet about music psychology under the handle study listening. And if you're uh, looking for more broadly information, the hashtag that my discipline uses is music science, which gets you all sorts of things from psychology to musicology to music technology to who knows what is there. Um, And also I have all of my research on a website. You can actually participate in some of my ongoing studies and find out findings from the other studies and that's uh, the website is researchaboutlistening.com we will chuck all of these links in the episode description so if you want to just scroll down to the description team you can find all of these handles links etc uh thank you amanda millie how about you well you can find me on twitter at 
at Cicluna Emily. So my last name is spelled S-C-I-C-L-U-N-A and then E-M-I-L-Y. I did have it the other way around on my Twitter handle, but then within about five minutes of me getting Twitter, I was rejected because <laughs> I was actually banished from Twitter for um, excessive excessive liking or following. <laughs> I, I followed too robot. many people what? too quickly. I didn't know that was, was just, possible. Oh, oh I just came on too strong. You know, I just, I just <laughs> came right. I was so excited. You had that donor energy. Like you were, exactly. you were channeling the donor. <laughs> oh, I was just, yeah, I was. I was just ferociously like just following all these different mm-hmm. people and then they were just like, this has to be a scammer. Get them off. <laughs> So anyway, now (laughs) my Twitter handle is surname first, then my name. Um, And you can find me to email me. I'm at La Trobe University. So yeah, if you Google something about fat-tailed donuts, Emily, uh, yeah, I'm sure you'll find me. (laughs) Feel free to. Thank you. Amazing. Thanks, Millie. And Brooke, how about you? So I'm also on Twitter. Um, Mine is just my first name and last name all rolled into one. Uh, so my last name is spelled F-A-R-R-U-G-I-A. So it's Brooke Fruger, all one word. And you're able to find me if you also Google my name. It will come up with the University of Melbourne website, which has my email address on there as well. Amazing. And once again, all those links will be in the description, along with the links to our socials, because we too have a Twitter. That's at true. Curiosity Rat, you can find us on Twitter, um, also Instagram, same handle, or we have a Facebook page, Curiosity Killed the Rat. Remember, you can follow us. Um, we didn't have a listener question this episode because it was the Pint of Science special, but normally we have a listener question at the end of every episode. So if you've got a burning question you want me to do the Googling for you, you can email curiosityrat at gmail.com and we will answer those questions in future episodes and we have, oh, a, Patreon and we have a Patreon as well. I always forget because it's new and it's exciting, <laughs> but we do now have a Patreon. So if you guys appreciate our show, we put a lot of time and effort into putting this thing together. We want it to be free. We want science to be free. We passionately think that, you know, science should be accessible for anyone mm-hmm. that wants it. But if you happen to have a little bit of a disposable income and you appreciate our work and want to chuck it our way, you can find us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash curiosity rat. And that brings us to the end of this Pint of Science special. Oh, while I'm spruiking socials, once again, I'll just remind <laughs> you um, at Pint of Science, you know, hashtag Pint AU21 is where you can find all the good stuff happening this Pint of Science Festival. Even if you're listening to this in a couple of weeks' time after it's been released, you know, you can go back. I'm sure everything's going to be recorded and you'll be able to, you know, backtrack and retrospectively find all the good stuff that is happening this year. Worst case, just scroll back on our show to the ones we did last year. Give them a listen as well. Also true. Also an option. In fact, you should just do all of that. Consume all of the science communication, (laughs) you know, that you can handle. I recommend it. Please consume um, science communication responsibly. Um, we don't want to be responsible for <laughs> science communication late. Yeah, injuries. consume responsibly. But, you know, have your two a day, five a day. I don't know. That's vegetables <laughs> and fruit, not alcohol. Science, science, same thing. Equally as important. <laughs> Equally as important. <laughs> and with that, thank you again to our Thanks, guests. Thanks, guys, for coming on again. And Thanks so much for having, having me. Thanks for having me. No worries at all. And we'll catch you guys next time. See you later. Curiosity. Kill the rat. Curiosity. Kill the rat.